HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you late but live on, uh, what is this, Tuesday? Like every Tuesday. Uh, uh, Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn on the Heritage Radio Network. Calling your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Got Joe running the show in the engineering booth today. How you doing? I'm doing great. How's it going, Dave? Yeah, all right. All right. Got Stas the Hammer Lopez as usual, trying to find some extra questions on the Twitter. Actually, using her phone and computer for radio-related things today. Is that true? As opposed to business-related, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well. I, well All right, wait. I'm looking on your Twitter. Well, we're trying to. F- I think it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, our friend and also museum uh, supporter. Uh, I always pronounce it Jean Doe. It's Jean Doe, like John Doe, but Jean like dough and dough like bread. Anyway, I think he w- I think he made the egg thing for the circulator because someone said wanted me to comment on it. But we got to find. I got to find the pictures that were sent. I believe it's Jean Doe's uh, thing. Anyway. So uh, before you do that, Stiles, why don't we talk about some of the fun things we did last week. We did uh, – on Friday we did an event. turns out that was a fundraiser for the Drawing Center, right? Yeah. And uh, it was Fran uh, Adria from uh, El Bully, The Bully, was, uh, was uh, having a show of his sketchbooks and we had to make cocktails for it. But apparently we'll talk about that in a minute because we have a caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, this is Kellen from Sweden. Wow. I am calling because I've been making tofu, and after making tofu for a while, I wanted to make some soy milk, but it tastes awful. It tastes really beany and gross. Right. Have you had soy milk that you like before by itself? Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm a vegan, so I eat a lot of soy milk, and a lot of it is shit, but uh, some of it's all right. Huh. So your question then presumably is how to get rid of the beaniness. Correct. Well, are you making a, th- a thin – like how many uh, – sorry to go uh, American units on you, but like roughly like how many um, cups of uh, soy or how many uh, – what's your ratio of water to soybean? Uh, I think it's about one to like five 
like one one cup of beans to five cups of water or something like that. One cup dry to five? Uh, soaked. Soaked? Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of medium, right? It's not too thick. It's not too thin. I'm wondering. Yeah, exactly. I'm wondering whether or not you should maybe go thinner to get rid of. And you're cooking the heck out of it, right? You're you're straining it and then cooking the heck out of it. Yeah. Correct. I've even tried like shocking it. That was a suggestion someone had on the internet was to shock the beans and then cook them after that. But it didn't seem to make a difference. Hmm. You mean, what do you mean? Sho- like shock at, like after you? Uh, they want they they were supposedly supposedly the beanie paste is in the skins somewhere. So you were supposed to uh, uh, shock them in boiling water and then. I cooked them again after that, which didn't really make any sense to me, but I gave it a try anyway. And, and it didn't work? No. And uh, you're not using the soaking water, right? No, correct. Yeah. Uh, shoot. And they're soaked all the way through, presumably. Yeah. I wonder, so the theory on the internet is that the beanie taste is water-soluble and can be removed from the hull area? Yeah, they, I read something about people actually shelling soybeans mechanically somehow, but um, that's not really possible at home. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, like, obviously when you're doing it, you know, the the outsides will slip off from time to time, but it's not something that you could do in any sort of repeatable way. Um, no. It's interesting because I, I only ever make tofu. I've never tried to make just the milk for the milk's sake. I mean, I've made – Yuba, and I've made you know various kinds of tofu, but I've never uh, never tried to focus on just the milk by itself. I'm wondering, you know how like um, one of the interesting things about um, soy is that you know everyone says that you know it's hard to oversoak it, and then some people say, well, you can oversoak it, but nobody really says what oversoaking means. My theory is is that if you've ever let the soybeans soak for a long time, that they start to ferment, and it's kind of the ferment that they're not liking and not any actual sort of over soaking of the bean i'm wondering if there is something water soluble that's extractable from in, in a beanie way whether or not multiple soaks uh with a change of water might help uh or or um see i don't think you'd be wise to do like a pre-boil of it before you grind because I, I don't know that's that'll probably affect yield wouldn't you think so i, I have no clue yeah this is something I'm sure that people have worried about quite extensively because people who buy the stuff commercially probably don't want the beanie taste. And I know that other, um, you know, other foods that have bad beanie taste to them, like guar, for instance, um, you know, commercially they extract the beanie taste from them, charge a premium, but because they don't want the, 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 beanie, the beanie taste. So I'm going to have to do some research because I've never tried to reduce the beaniness of soy. But it's a huge problem because, remember, people dope um, all kinds of products with soy all the time. And the, and the main uh, gripe that they, you have with it is the beanie flavor. For inst- and that yeah, be- even, yeah, go ahead. even the best ones are kind of beanie. Yeah. Well, and so, like, for instance, you know, when you try to – like, one of the reasons to use soy in, in snack foods is to increase uh, kind of crunchiness without having to dope with gluten, right, or to add the protein fraction to things like that. But beaniness is a constant problem. And the beaniness, the higher temperature that you put something to, the more prevalent that beanie flavor is. You know what I mean? Like, really, like, in terms of, uh, in terms of like, high, high, high pressure and temperature uh, snack foods, for instance. So mm-hmm. – um, so this is something that people worry about quite a bit, 
but I I haven't tried to address it. But I've you know we've, I've had a bunch of tofu questions recently, and I've started you know after a couple of year hiatus, you know making tofu on a regular basis again at home. So you know I, over the next you know couple of weeks, I'm sure I'll be making a couple of batches of of soy milk, and I feel really dumb. I have not even tasted the soy milk. I just don't even taste it. I look at it to see what it's like, and then I hit it with uh, with the coagulant. So I'll look into it and I'll see if I can figure out anything, and then you know I'll re- I'll report back uh, on the show. And if anyone out there listening has any ideas, please tweet it in, and then we'll have some sort of Twitter exchange about it. Alrighty. Sorry, I couldn't be more direct. Yeah. Help. No, that's great. Thank you. All right, cool. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll work on that. That's an interesting point. Do you like tofu stars, or is mm-hmm. that one of the things you, you actually like it? Mm-hmm. Wow, surprisingly, surprisingly, stars comes out on the right side of the of the taste uh, thing this time. Anyways, so uh, before we go into the uh, questions that we have, um, um, we're going to have another caller. All right. Yeah. All right, caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. Uh, love the show. I found the podcast a little while ago, uh, and I can't stop listening to it. Oh, thanks. I've got a question for you about Subi brisket. Okay. It's a second cup brisket, um, and, you know, the more research you do online, the fewer answers you find and the more questions you have. Right. So... Um, what I wanted to do is I've got this stovetop smoker. I wanted to throw it in there for about 15 minutes, get some smoke on it, then, um, you know, vac it up and put it in for, say, 72 hours, let it go. Right. I, my problem, though, is, um, you know, with the second cup recipe, you've got a lot of collagen in there. So I'm concerned that if I do it at a low temperature, say 140 uh, Fahrenheit, then I'm going to be, you know, it's not going to melt, and I'm going to be left with all that collagen in there. Right. So have you done a, you've done a lot of low temp, long-term low-temperature cooking already, or no? I wouldn't say a lot. I got myself the Anova sous vide cooker sure. a couple months ago. Right. And I should say I, I love it. <laughs> Good. I, I haven't uh, used that one, so you like it? Yeah, I think it's great. Nice. All right. And it's cheap. It's 200 bucks. 200 bucks Can't beat that. Yeah. Um, okay, but have you done a lot of long, long time low temp work? Like, have you done like, for instance, like short ribs or any of those things? I did. I did short ribs, and they were fantastic. What what uh, time temperature did you use for the short ribs? For the short ribs, I did. I think let's say one thirty seven. I think I did. So that's and like fifty eight Celsius, yeah, something like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I actually did. The two bags. I did one with nothing in it, and one I poured some barbecue sauce in. And I actually preferred the one with the barbecue sauce. Okay. Yeah, you need to remember when you're doing long cooks like that, though, with sauce. Barbecue sauce is quite thick as it is. But one of the mistakes people make when they're bagging this stuff is they uh, they put a, a, a sauce in that has a too high of a water content. And then when the meat gives up its liquid as it cooks in the bag, as you notice, the other you know the other one gave up you know its liquid. Like it right. ends up having so much liquid in the bag that it tastes more poached. You know, and so when we did a lot of uh, short ribs with more of a French sauce on it at the French Culinary. Uh, you know, like the comparison we always made is it stops tasting like a braise and more like a pot of feu. You know what I mean? So it's, right. uh, yeah, that, that, that's something to look out for. But so you're cooking like 58 for about how long? I did almost 72 hours. Okay. So here's the, here's the, here's how it, how it works with low temperature. And for brisket specifically, specifically for smoked and barbecue style briskets, you're going to want to look at, uh, modernist cuisine and, um, 
you know, Chris Young because he's a bit of a barbecue fanatic. And so he spent a lot of time worrying about like kind of smoking and temperatures. But in, t- in general, to answer your question, um, the collagen will never render out. The collagen will get soft and it will get uh, the, everything will get moist, but neither the fat nor the collagen will render. So uh, if you look into like one of the benefits of a low temperature, um, a low temperature uh, meat cooked for a long term like this is that as opposed to a braise, uh, it has very high sliceability, right? But very little collagen rendering. Now the difference is in a, in a traditional like. Uh, Texas style barbecue, you know, where it's cooked for a long brisket, where it's cooked for a long period of time, right? You do get some of that, co- you get that some of that collagen rendering, but you also still have sliceability, right? Because it's a different kind of cooking than a braise, where everything gets busted up, right? Right. In a low temperature cooking, the temperatures are never high enough for the collagen to melt out of its out of its location once it converts to gelatin. So you end up having very soft. And you know you still have an unctuous mouthfeel, but it hasn't totally you know imbued the entire piece of meat with that melted collagen. Now the reason you don't need that when you're doing low temperature work is that you've never overcooked the protein to the point where it requires a lot of extra liquid for uh, for it to be palatable again, right? So in a traditional uh, long cook, you go from a period of kind of dry, tough meat, all of a sudden it gets good again, right? And, you know, it's one of those things you learn when you're doing long temperature, uh, you know, like traditional braises or, 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 you know, barbecue, things like that. Um, and low temperature cooking never works that way because you, you, the, the trick is is that you never take that first step of overcooking the protein. And then you're just waiting for a long time for the collagen to break down into gelatin, but still it never renders out. The one thing that I will say that bothers people is the fat that never renders out. So like fat caps and stuff, I tend to trim more in uh, when I'm doing low temp meats than I do uh, when um, – you know, when I'm doing a traditional where I don't have to worry about it because it's going to render out and go into the sauce anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so you, the collagen isn't going to have a, like, I've never eaten, you know, unrendered collagen. Um, it's not going to have, like, a bad taste or mouthfeel? No, it's going to be great. No, the, the, like, the only thing it's not going to break down are, you know, our actual, you know, pieces of grizzle, like, you know, elastin and that kind of stuff won't break down. But collagen will break down just fine. It just won't melt out of its place, so you'll still see, you'll still see it, but it it will be soft, you know. Um, one th- here's another thing when you're when you're taking into account uh, how how things go, is that, uh, and I have a lot more experience with long cooks of short ribs because I have to I used to have to do it incessantly when I was teaching, right? And so what you notice is is that you choose your you choose how you want the meat to be done. Right, and right. then you have to choose the time based on the texture that you want, and so um, what happens is is that um, because it, you're not overcooking it uh, with temperature wise, it never is dry, and so what happens is it just goes from being tough to progressively more tender, and eventually to being mushy. Okay, uh-huh. and and the because the temperatures are, that you're cooking with are so low. Um, a couple of degrees makes a big difference in how long you need to cook something to get uh, a particular um, texture. So for instance, if you cook a short rib uh, at 57 degrees uh, uh, Fahrenheit – sorry, 57 degrees Celsius, which is roughly 135 uh, degrees Fahrenheit, and you cook that for 24 hours, like pretty much on the the nose, that will have the texture of skirt steak. 
Okay, and I like that. People don't expect it in a short rib, so people usually don't prefer it. But I know a couple of restaurants. I think Roberta's. I think you know Carlo used to use a similar number uh, as that and and sell it almost like it's a steak. It eats like a steak. Now, if you're doing that way, you don't want any salt or anything on it because it's going to affect the texture and make the texture more cured, right? Yeah. If you cook that same uh, one for 48 to 50 to 56 hours then you start being in a traditional softness of a short rib right and then right. if you cook that for 72 hours in my t- in my feeling it's a little too soft and and what happens when something gets too soft in, in my in my opinion is when you bite in it the fibers break up too easily and give up their juice kind of too easily it loses too much of its structure now if you were to do michel richard and and, and uh uh and uh, Bruno Gousseau, when they were doing some of their like early kind of you know virtuoso, this is what low temperature stuff can do. They were doing short ribs down at like fifty four point four degrees Celsius, right? Which is you know rare, rare. And there they needed they needed a full seventy two just to get it to normal uh, short rib range, right? Now if you go all the way up to sixty, and I think and, and we've done a lot of tests of you know fifty seven is kind of an interesting, which is one hundred thirty five is really is interesting in that kind of meat because people aren't used to having it that rare. It's like in a mead rare state, right. uh, but. Uh, it's still, you know, not so rare that people are like cause some old timers. If you give them a rare, uh, a rare brisket like that, or a rare short rib, they they don't understand it. They're like, "What? What are you doing to me? Are you poisoning me? What's going on?" You know what I mean? Uh, but I think most people end up preferring uh, closer to sixty, which is one hundred and forty, which is you know the kind of the other numbers that you you've been dealing with. So I think right. that's a good like one hundred and forty. And I think at, at 140, you probably don't need to go more than like 48. So I would test one at like 48 hours. And I think a prelim smoke isn't going to hurt anything from a taste standpoint. But I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily expect the awesome smoke ring that you would get out of a traditional thing, although you can have it happen with uh, – I used to get it by accident sometimes when I, you know, used curing salts and for like exactly the wrong amount of time I would get it just right. But I've never been the master of the of the smoke ring. But Chris Young yeah. has uh, detailed this stuff extensively and I'm sure if you go to chefsteps.com, chefsteps.com, I'm sure that they uh, will, you know, have like if if they don't have a specific uh, um, protocol for you that they'll they'll provide one. Right. Yeah, I love Chef Steps. And you actually touched on one follow-up item I wanted to ask about, which was uh, salting before putting it in. Right. Um, I had read somewhere, someone suggested salting, uh, put some salt and cracked uh, pepper on it for and put it in the fridge for about two hours and then get started. Um, I've read your rundown on salting steaks before cooking sous vide. Right. Um, but I wasn't sure how that would apply to, say, uh, a brisket. Well, it, it all depends on what you want. So you just have to you have to pay attention. So if you if like the results are pretty clear that if you salt meat before you cook it, and this actually t- ties into a question I have to answer uh, later today about kosher meats. If you salt meat before well, cooking kosher too. Oh yeah. All right. Well, so there's a they, you know so like you know you'll hopefully hear later on I have a question on uh, you know this the person says I think that kosher meats. Uh, Beef specifically, you know, uh, isn't as good, or I hear it's not as good. He he can't tell because he only eats kosher, so he can't do side buys, right? That's funny. That's the same with me. Yeah. So, uh, but, well, well, it might as well. I'll get into it now, and then I'll address anything I miss uh, later. So, um, the issue is if you salt beforehand, it changes the texture of the meat. So, traditional, uh, you know, steak 
texture is looser than I don't know any better way to say it, but it's looser than not necessarily more tender, just looser than meat that's been salted, right? And right. you know, if you and you could tell the difference even between something that is salted you know, and meant to be is sitting around for a while versus something that's even fresh salted with, when you're doing koshering on it, right? Now, I've read, and that's just, the, and this is why, you know, for, you know, even, you know, folks that were non, you know, kosher, right, uh, back in the day, but, you know, before, you know, we all forget, everyone brines now, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, the, the people who were the, the, the folks that made brining what it is today in the community in, in um, poultry, is uh, Cook's Illustrated. So whether you love them or whether you hate them, I mean, I know that's how I got into brining, uh, and I think most of us, you know, you know, decades ago, that's how they got into brining in the early days of Cook's Illustrated in the '90s, early '90s, right? Uh, and you know, one of the observations everyone used to make was that, hey, look at uh, kosher uh, kosher chicken is typically better than um, better than a regular chicken when you're cooking it. You know, in a traditional fashion, and the reason is is because it's been salted, right? I mean, uh, that I mean that's the that is the reason, and so you know, I think a lot of the the lot of the reason, except for a lot of times they're smaller producers and you can get a higher quality out of it. A lot of the reason to specifically look for a kosher bird once you start brining, you know, is is not there now. M- meat, beef. Is not the is not the same. So beef, because you're not cooking it to those higher uh, temperatures, you don't really necessarily need the protection that the salting gives you from drying out the meat when you're cooking it. Because you know fundamentally, the reason to brine uh, uh, poultry when you're doing it is one for flavor, right? I mean, if, if it's not for if it's not to get rid of the right for you, one of the primary reasons is to get rid of the blood so that you can you know comply with the kosher laws, but. Right. Uh, you know the other reasons are to, to uh, season the meat and to uh, have the the salt um, alter the conformation of the protein such that they hold on to their water better and respond better to overcooking without drying out hmm. now in a steak that 's going to be cooked rare that 's not an issue because you um, you 're cooking it rare you 're not going to overcook the, the the meat and so you don 't want the salt in there because the altered uh, proteins aren 't don't taste the same. They don't have the same texture as an unsalted piece of uh, rare steak does. They're not bad. They're just different. So, um, you know, one of the things that I was wondering is, is that I know it's allowed. I went on uh, kind of the, you know, the the hardest core uh, group that I could find was, uh, you know, the uh, Shabbat Lubavitchers, and I looked at their koshering thing, and apparently you can get um, – you know, properly slaughtered meat that has not yet been uh, salted and salt it yourself at home. And if you look at the numbers, uh, right, so to properly kosher a, uh, a steak, you're going to need to uh, soak it for, uh, I think it's like a half hour. I have the numbers in the iPad, but it's, you know, it's gone to sleep right now. It's like a half hour or an hour or something like that in water. And that's going to be fine. That's not going to do uh, too much uh, damage to it. It'll take on some water, but that's not a big deal from a textural standpoint, right? And then you rinse off anything, uh, you know, uh, any clots or anything that are on the outside. And now you salt it for a half hour, right? Uh, and and that salting for a half hour, and then you're required, uh, a, you know, a triple rinse after that. My feeling is, if you have a good thick steak and you do that, that and you cook it right away, that the meat is going to have a very similar texture to uh, an unkoshered piece of meat uh, from um, from a 
protein standpoint texture. So if you know if you can get away with that, if you could swing that to do this, then I would do a side by side on that versus one that had the salting done at the butcher shop. Because from my reading, apparently both are allowed, and that will allow you to have kind of a side by side on what the you know what the difference would be between something that had been salted a long time before and something that hadn't. Now the other thing is depends on how thorough their rinsing of the salt off is as well, uh, you know, or how thick the piece of meat is. I mean, I don't know what the laws are on how thick a piece of meat you're allowed to kosher that way with a, with a simple half hour uh, salting. Um, but I know this: if you salt a steak and you cook it in uh, in a bath for uh, an hour. It still tastes like uh, a normal steak. If you salt it and you cook it for an hour and a half, you know uh, it still tastes like a normal steak. Th- two hours, three hours, then you start having more of the texture of a cured steak, even when it's rare. Now, luckily for you, on a brisket, it, you know you're cooking it above that rare temperature anyway, and so you're not going to have those same issues. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saying that. It, it shouldn't really matter. <laughs> not at not at those temperatures. Uh, my feeling is is that once you're above uh, like 135 uh, or thereabouts, like the difference between uh, the salted and the unsalted is not going to make that much. Not going to make as much of a difference. Uh, and if I'm starting with a kosher piece of meat anyway, then there isn't really any sense to salting at home again. Well, I don't know. I mean, the question is like you know, if you cook it and. It, it, I mean, again, I don't know how much of the salt is in it and then stays in it after the triple rinse. Because remember, you're triple rinsing it after you salt it. It's to get the surface salt off, but I don't know how much is still in the meat because it's only been sitting a half hour. So a lot's going to depend on how thick the meat is. Uh, You know, uh, a salting beforehand might still make a a big difference because you remember when you're you're salting a steak uh, to sear it, Typically, you're putting a boat ton of salt on it. You know what I mean? You grind a lot of pepper on it, and you put a good salting on the outside. And now that sucker's sitting in a bag at high temperature for a long time. And so you're getting a lot more salt penetration than you would out of, let's say, a you know, out of a piece of meat that's being koshered for the minimum half an hour salt time on each side. Does that make sense? So it, it might still be an issue. I've never done a side-by-side, for instance, on going to a uh, coach or butcher shop and ordering two different thicknesses of the same cut that have both been salted after they're cut to see whether or not there's a big difference in texture between those low temperature cooked. That would be an interesting test to run. You know, um, I just don't know. Right. Um, all right. Well, um, I'll put in a plug if you want to find some kosher meat. My buddy uh, runs this company, Grow and Behold, in Brooklyn. Uh, where you can get some good kosher meat. It's called Grow and Behold? Yeah. All right. I'll check it out. They do a good job? Yeah, I think so. All right. And uh, just before I go, maybe if you have any uh, modernist Super Bowl ideas for next week. Ooh, modern, well, that's more of a Stas thing. I was going to ask her what she's doing for the Super Bowl. Are you going to Sears awesome stuff? Or are, you, no. are you having the party at your house or someone else's house? Phil's house. Oh, Phil's house. Nastasha's friends hate food. Is that true or false? It's true. They love food. They just don't care. Phil, Phil, Phil Bravo, who I'm allowed to make fun of because he was supposed to come on the show and like do some announcing for us and never did. Like uh, you know, he's his his like signature dish is bone in overcooked tilapia. <laughs> so like, I doubt they're gonna have any modernist stuff at the Nastasha stuff. For, you know, for Super Bowl, I don't, I don't even know if. I mean, I'm sure I'll have it on because I have a TV this year for the first time in a long time. But you know, like if I was gonna do. Uh, 
I mean, my, here's the other issue. My wife doesn't really like wings. I know this sounds bad, but my wife doesn't like wings because she doesn't like the bones. I like nachos a lot. Maybe I'll make maybe I'll make a boatload of nachos. In which case, I'll just be using the searsol to do a uh, to do a uh, you know a cheese toast on that. I got to think about it. We didn't really do any good, a good job of thinking of Super Bowl stuff for the uh, program, did we, Stas? No. Because you're the only one that cares, but you don't care about coming up with stuff for the show. So <laughs> well, I did the tailgate. Oh yeah, Stas. Stas. Well, what did you do with the tailgate? We used it for everything. We grilled sausages. We uh, boiled beans by holding it under the pot. We yeah. made s'mores. Because that's your outside. You did the, the brats, though, nachos. right? Yeah, brats. Yeah, so they did the sausage. They did, like, the classic, like, the 140 cook-off of the sausage and then uh, sear off with the with the searsol. By the way, like, it's not necessarily, like, it's not really modernist, but the pre-cook of a sausage in, uh, you know, whatever kind of sausage you want, your case, beef, obviously, uh, or lamb. Lamb sausage, delicious. Um you know, it, 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 pre-cooking it at uh, 60, 140, and then doing a, like a, a like a flash finish on the outside is such a technically superior way to cook a sausage that it surprises me that you would ever cook a sausage a different way unless, you know, you needed to cook one right now and you didn't want to bust out a circulator. If you had a circulator, I wouldn't see any reason to cook a sausage any different way. Uh, yeah, so you just like bring that. it up to temp at 60? Doesn't matter how long. I let it ride for a while. I usually put it. I usually put the the, the sausages in uh, ziplocs with uh, with a little bit of uh, oil, and uh, I let them ride for uh, a while, a couple hours usually at sixty. Uh-huh. And here here's the reason: is that uh, in a sausage, um, you, you're using the the grinder to break up typically tough pieces of meat and. Uh, and the tenderization is a mechanical one, right? Grinding. Yeah. And then you have fat to lubricate the meat because you're going to overcook the meat, right? So you know you're going to overcook the meat and you know that it's tough. So you have a lot of fat and you grind the hell out of it and you put it into a casing, sausage. Right. Now, if you uh, if you say, okay, look, I'm going to go low temp so I'm not going to overcook the meat, right? That's one benefit right there. But also remember each individual grain in the sausage is still from a tougher piece of meat. Right, so if you cook it for longer than you normally would, it's going to tenderize. Now you don't need to cook it for you know you know a zillion years, but you know I let them just sit there at at you know uh, 140 at 60 for a long time until they're ready to go, and then I let them cool down a, a little bit, and then I do a quick sear off. And people love those sausages; they really do. Cool, got to give it a try. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't done any low temperature wings because that would be a home thing, and like I say, my wife doesn't love it. But like, I guarantee you, you could do a low like here, like a low temperature wing. Here's the problem with a low temperature wing. I gotta say, is that when you um, when you're doing um, bone in chicken low temp, uh, you tend to never lose uh, uh, that little bit of a. uh, There's a little bit of a bloodline. On the uh, on the bone, that's very hard to get rid of. So you get this persistent pinking, and if you do it in a vacuum bag, it gets even worse because the sucking the vacuum on uh, the chicken bones pulls some of the the pink stuff from the interior of the bone almost. At least that's what I think to the outside of me. And it just those colors never go away when you're doing low temperature cooking, and that's why like uh, pretty much a hundred percent of the chicken that I do low temperature, I bone it out first. And so it's not really good for for wings, you know. Yeah, yeah. I actually, David Supreme blog has a recipe for uh, low temperature chicken wings that I tried, and I was not terribly impressed. Yeah, do you remember what their specs were? I don't. This was a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, like I do low temperature chicken all the time, and I think a lot of the problem with low temperature chicken. Well, here's what I do: I typically cook the 
I cook the dark meat, boned out. Uh, I salt it, and then I cook it in uh, in salted milk for about 45 minutes at uh, 66 uh, or 66.5, depending on how I feel. And I cook the breast meat at around 64.5 to 65 for the same amount of time. Uh, and then I pull it out of the bag, flash it, uh, flash it dry uh, by by letting it air out when it's hot. Then I do my uh, my breading and and I fry them. And the advantage of doing low temperature uh, stuff that way at like a party, let's say, for instance, with Super Bowls, if you have other fried stuff like rings or fries, that you can fry everything at the same high temperature because you don't need to worry about cooking the chicken; it's already cooked. Whereas if you're doing uh, like a large fried item like a fried chicken. You would normally have to drastically reduce the temperature of the fry oil or you would never get it cooked all the way through before you burnt the outside. So the pre-cook on that, I do more from a, um, more from a workflow um, benefit because if you wanted to do it without doing the traditional pre-step, you have to do tenders. That's why chicken tenders are such a good idea from a workflow standpoint. Uh, not the and also it's using that crappy piece of meat, but you know what I'm saying. It's like it's like making it small enough so it can cook uh, all the way through. Whereas if you have it pre cooked, you don't need to worry about it. Right. All right. Very cool. Thank you. All right. Well, have a good Super Bowl. Thank you. All right. Too. All right. Bye. And so, just a shout out to the question who the person who wrote in the original question, uh, Judah Malka wrote in and said. My, and we, we answered it mostly. My question for you today is regarding kosher meat, which you may or may not have experience working with. I've heard numerous times from people who have tried both that the quality of kosher steaks they have eaten at kosher restaurants is significantly worse than what is offered at your average non-kosher steakhouse. The discrepancy is blamed on the koshering process that the meat goes through post-slaughter. Being that I can't do a side-by-side uh, because I only eat kosher, I wonder if you explain from a theoretical standpoint why this may be the case. I think it has more to do with the actual quality of the meat that's being served rather than the koshering process, but I could very well be wrong. Um, my understanding is that meat that is labeled kosher does not have uh, to have the USDA grading uh, as being primer choice. From my own kosher shopping experiences, I find it very difficult to find the same consistently good-looking cuts, similar to what I notice even in your average grocery butcher's case, and I wonder if this is where the difference lies. Um, so anyway, uh, I don't know. So that could also be an issue that you don't have access to the high – I have a really kind of weird – you want to hear a weird one? We have nine minutes. Nine minutes. Um, well, you, want, you still want to hear a weird one? So Okay, so a family member of mine – uh, you know, or it used to be a butcher, and they were butchers for uh, generations, I think right? Told this story a couple times about the kosher. No, about the so well the way you don't know what story I'm going to tell. So so hush it. So anyway, so he was a, a butcher in Boston for many years, and their specialty was lamb. And one of the things that they used to do uh, was they would. Um, they would supply the kosher market, right? Because there weren't that many people who were doing their own lamb slaughtering. Because they would go, you know, up north of Boston and get their own lambs, and then they would, uh, you know, they would do the slaughtering. And they would hire. They'd have, you know, they'd have the, uh, you know, the rabbi there who would do the inspection on the carcasses to make sure that they, uh, you know, were were kosher. That there was no blemishes, there was no problems. Now. Here's the problem. They paid the rabbi a specific amount of money to uh, check the lamb. Now, the rabbi got paid whether or not the animal passed or not, right? So whether or not they got the kosher stamp on the sucker, uh, it, they had to pay whatever the, whatever the inspection charge was. So here's how they used to get around it. This is like, you know, like old, old school uh, like Boston thievery kind of stuff. They would – they looked for a long time on what the rabbi would do and one of the things he would do is he would stick his hand inside 
of the lamb and uh, check to make sure that the lining, the pleura, the, uh, where the lungs were, was not attached, that it was free all the way around. And that was, you know, the main check they would do to make sure that the, that the animal wasn't sick or had a problem. So what these guys used to do is they would shove a, a, a knife into a small incision like up n- north of where the, uh, the rabbi would check and they would shove their fingers in and separate the pleura from the um, – uh, from the from the you know the thing, so it looked clean. And then when they made the when, when you know when the rabbi came to make the check and check, then he would give it a kosher, whether it was kosher or not. Can you believe that? Yeah. It's a crazy story. Here's another thing I didn't realize is that you can kosher something with uh, with fire as well by broiling it. And in fact, according to uh, you know the Lubavitcher site I went on, that's really the only way to do liver because you can't apparently salt the blood out of liver. But I had no idea that. Uh, like like real kosher like chicken livers had been broiled till they were half done before they were then cooked again. Did you know that? No. I did not know that. Did not know. Uh, anyway, that was from uh, Judah Malka, uh, and so hopefully that uh, answered that question. Okay. Um, Joshua writes in about uh, – oh, before we get to, to that question, we got a, a, a thing in from Aaron about pedal valves. And he said, your listeners might like to look up pedalvalve.com. Uh, and because as everyone who has heard me say it knows, I love foot pedals on a sink. Uh, but it's kind of difficult to hook up the pedals the way I have them. So Aaron points us to pedalvalve.com, which uh, you know has residential foot pedals that you can install into – they say into any regular sink. Here's the issue though. I looked at that website and that'll work. But for what they want to do, you could get almost any mixing pedal valve, for instance, TNS brass, and hook it up the way that they want to, although they might they give you the adapters and whatnot. They, the, the issue on that website is that those foot pedals, uh, you are required to keep your sink in the on position at all times in order to have the uh, foot pedal operate. And I don't know whether you can operate them independently. I have to read more, right? Whereas mine, the handles, the wrist handles, are completely independent of the foot. So if you want to operate my sink like a normal sink with handles, you can. If you want to operate it with foot pedals, you can, or any combination thereof. You could have the hot water on with the wrist handle, and then I could hit the cold water with the foot pedal to moderate the temperature. I can do anything I want. So that's the real trick that I don't think that the pedal valve uh, guys are uh, addressing because they're, they're not looking to integrate into a particular faucet. They're looking to integrate into most of the uh, single mixing uh, tube uh, faucets. Anyway, uh, my thoughts on that. Um, Joshua writes in about nitro stout and bottles. Uh, Dave, Natasha, Jack, and Joe. Not Jack. He doesn't like us. No. No. Anyway. Uh, I've been playing around with beer gas, which uh, is a nitrogen and CO2 blend to carbonate different beverages in order to get the creamy carbonated mouthfeel of a nitro stout. I started with clarified fruit juices and got nothing. Uh, I added various amounts of gelatin to fruit juice because head retention in beers is protein-related and got about 60 seconds of that mouthfeel I wanted before it disappeared. So what is responsible for the properties that Nitro Stout has, and how can I alter other beverages to have that same a creamy carbonated mouthfeel for as long as possible? I was just in New York on business and made a beeline for Sambar and Booker and & Dax. Booker and & Dax always manages to hit it out of the park, so thank you. I also love the apothecary-type glass bottles you use. I would love to find uh, similar. Where could I get them? Thanks for the great show and for helping my culinary education. Joshua. Okay. First of all, on our bottles, uh, the small ones, you you know, I looked around. You can get them um, 
online. Bestbottles.com has some. They're fancier. Uh, they're like $6 a piece. I looked on www.saveoncrafts.com, and they do like weddings and stuff. And they had them on like uh, eight-ounce corktop uh, clear glass apothecary bottles, like a 12-count case for not that much, for like 18 bucks. That's the way I go. The larger ones we use are actually Espelon, tequila Espelon bottles. Uh, they look just like those apothecary bottles but larger uh, in 750 size. So we use those. Now, on the uh, milk nitro stuff, um, uh, here's the deal. Uh, beer gas is nitrogen and carbon dioxide, as you say. And the point of beer gas is so that you can have a, a high pressure on the keg to drive the product through without having a lot of carbonation, right? That's the idea on beer gas. You can have fairly low volumes of carbonation and a fairly high pushing pressure. So the nitrogen is there really to not dissolve into your um, not dissolve into y- your product that much. Now on a widget, right, in a Guinness, for instance, like it's there to push through and to create small bubbles that lift up to the top and create that head, right? They're releasing it they're releasing it that way. Now, these nitro guys don't have a widget in there, right? It's left hand brewing company are the ones that are making this like the nitro stout. And uh, I-, I can't get I can't speak to what they do, but here's what I think. They said we considered putting a pat. Literally, they said in 2010, I think we considered putting a patent on the process, but didn't want our competitors to know how we do it. And here's a little, another little secret: nitrogen is not very soluble in uh, in liquids, and that's really the point of why they're using it in uh, beer gas to begin with. Uh, my feeling is they're not using nitrogen. My feeling is they're using nitrous oxide, which is what I use all the time to put creamy uh, mouthfeel into carbonated beverages and have been doing for a long, long, long time. And that's what like A&W Root Beer uh, did and Sunkiss. They used to have uh, um, uh, creamy sodas that had nitrous in them. Nitrous oxide is completely soluble in gas, doesn't get uh, in, in liquid, doesn't give a prickly mouthfeel uh, and create and gives you that, that exact thing. So what you you can do as a first approximation if you don't have uh, if you don't have a source of nitrous like I have it in the bottles and I have you know for years I've had a, a mixing system where I can mix however much nitrous I want in with my carbon dioxide is you can uh, like kind of pre-carbonate uh, something then put it into an ISI bottle right uh, and then hit it with some nitrous uh, and that'll put nitrous into it and it'll see whether or not that is kind of the thing that you're looking for but since you can't make nitrogen dissolve uh, effectively in a bottle without a mechanical widget in it my guess is that uh, and again uh, I'd be happy to have someone tell me I'm completely wrong but my guess is that those nitro guys are saying nitrogen but using nitrous which contains nitrogen so it's not strictly speaking a lie but that that is my that is my feeling what do you say before Stas? What, zero minutes now. What, they're not going to let me answer any more questions? Yeah. Yeah. How many more do you have? I have a bunch. Here's the thing. I got a, I got a question in uh, from Sam about parchment paper. I'll deal with that one uh, next week. I got another question from Josh in uh, Antigua uh, about quinoa and about lupini beans. I did a lot of research actually on the lupini beans, and I got some information for you, Josh, but I guess we'll have to get to that uh, next week. Uh, and with that, that's the cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.